Let me pray and then I'll read. Our Father, we do want your help tonight to turn from what we usually think to turn to what you think about how we can be friends with you. And we pray that you help us to change our thinking and to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now we to read Philippians chapter 3 and the whole chapter. Here goes. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if anything you think and if in anything you think otherwise God will reveal that also to you only let us hold true to what we have attained 
brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Well, let's stop there for a moment, and Natalie is going to be Pied Piper and take out the children, and we'll come back and look at those verses in more detail. Good, but now we're left on our own. Let's uh, ask ourselves an interesting question. Is it good to be good? Is God impressed if you're good? And would it shock you if I told you that actually God hates a certain kind of goodness? Now, I'm not saying that to get us off going the opposite way, to end up being bad. Now, the destination we end up with at the end of this chapter is going to be very different. But not just at the end. Verse 1 will reveal that our destination is going to be something better than goodness because the hint is there in verse 1 it's going to end up in rejoicing this chapter is going to take our eyes off our own goodness and give us our joy back that's what verse 1 promises so let's get into the chapter and we'll see first that Paul's goodness is not good that's the first thing that we're going to look at that it's not always good to be good in the eyes of God. We'll see why. And we'll see that in Paul's life, his goodness is not good. Now, if you have a look at what Paul says about himself in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 3, and you see how he said he himself had confidence in the flesh, there's various things that he says about himself, he is actually telling us that he is the perfect Christian. Now, I know that the checklist is uh, about Jewish achievements. These are all Jewish things that he did, but they add up to being the perfect religious person in the Bible. Just think about it. There's no messed up life. There's no before and after to Paul's story, he doesn't say I was bad to start with and then this big change happened Then I became good. No, there's no contrast like that. He was good from the start. When he was a baby, he was initiated into God's people. A lot of people say that's how you start well. And Paul started in the best way. He was circumcised uh, in day eight when it should have happened. He was part of the nation of, of, of Israel. 
uh, they were the special people of God in the Old Testament. But better than that, he came from the tribe of Benjamin. Let me tell you, the tribe of Benjamin, one of the only two tribes in the Old Testament that did not rebel against God's king, David. Benjamin was loyal all the way through. Paul came from there. And he didn't just simply bank his background. He built on it. He became the best Jew he possibly could be. He couldn't have done more to keep the law. He put heart and soul into it. He was a Pharisee. They were the ones who did more than anybody else. And boy, did he do it with enthusiasm. So if anyone got in the way, like Christians, who seemed to be telling Jews that it wasn't enough to be Jewish, but Paul would gun them down. And he tells you that's what he did. His opposition was full on. And uh, that's what he tells us in verses uh, 5 and 6. So he says, uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Yeah, I did all that. Now, let me ask you to remember one thing. When Paul is telling you that uh, he was the perfect religious person, try and remember this, that he was a perfect religious person in the most perfect religion of the world. So that uh, Judaism had every bit of their religion coming straight from God. And therefore you could not get a better religion than this. Never think of Judaism as one religion above many. Think of it at the pinnacle, at the top. This is the Rolls Royce of religions and every other religion is like a, a Skoda equivalent. It tries to get to the same place but um, in, a, in a less refined way. All religions give people a checklist of different things to do but uh, the Old Testament checklist came straight from God. These were the things that mattered. But Paul changed his mind if you look at verse 7. And whatever I gain I had, I counted as lost. Now, why did he change his mind about what he thought about Judaism? And what changed his mind is very simply this. That what he came to see is that... Uh, the whole Jewish religion was simply to tell you about what God was like. All these laws were all there to tell you what God was like. And therefore, all these laws were pointing into the future at what Jesus would be like. The whole of the Old Testament, with all its laws and everything, is not a uh, uh, do list it's a drum roll for a person who's going to come and live just like that and that's exactly what Jesus did if you remember what his life was like everybody said that there was not one thing that Jesus did wrong so you take his enemies 
They were the people who really were wanting to prove that he had done something wrong, and they couldn't agree on a single thing that he had got wrong. So if you keep a finger in page 981 and turn just a couple of pages back to Mark chapter 14 and verse 55 to 59, and you'll find that uh, at the bottom of page 851. Page 851. And this is what the enemies, okay? These are the enemies trying to uh, put their reasons together as to why Jesus was uh, bad and had broken their law. And this is what happened. Roman, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but that testament did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, that testimony did not agree. The enemies couldn't agree that Jesus had done a thing wrong. What about those who were neutral? Like Pontius Pilate, the one who was conducting the trial. What did he have to say about Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what he had to say about Jesus. He said, I find no guilt with this man. What about his friends? His friends would know if he'd done anything wrong because they were with him all the time. So therefore, the friends would know whether Jesus was perfect or not, wouldn't they? Well, what did they have to say about him? If you look at uh, what uh, Peter said as he summarized Jesus' life in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he said, This was a man who went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the devil. In other words, the whole of Judaism was pointing to this one life who ticked every box and did everything that was required of him and then he turns around to you and to me and he says look do you want to do your own righteousness or would you like mine would you like uh, all the things that I've done to keep the law would you want me to hand that on to you give that to you as a gift and so the perfect religion is pointed to Jesus who fulfills everything in the Old Testament and then says, here you are, you can have my righteousness. You never work out righteousness by yourself. Now my friends, the only reason you and I will ever say yes to Jesus giving us his righteousness is if we see our own righteousness as rubbish. And that's what he says in verse 8. He says, um, The loss of all things, and I count them rubbish. Now, does anyone know instantly where the biggest rubbish tip is in the world? 
Anyone know where it is? Is it in Yeah, there's lots of places where there's a lot of big landfill and Brazil and all sorts of other places, yes? The sea. Hmm? In the sea. Absolutely. Where in the sea? Ah. <laughs> she's no 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 it's not on the sand although a lot of rubbish is on the sand isn't it that's true no uh, you weren't listening what Hannah was telling you is it's between the sea between Hawaii and Japan which is a massive amount of sea and in that sea underneath there are uh, currents that work in a vortex which get rubbish into that area and keep it in that area and it is a huge amount of rubbish now in fact they say it covers America twice that is how much it is it's described as a soup of plastic floating on the top of the water over an area like that. Now, you might think that is really quite a long way away from England. We're safe. It doesn't matter. Poor people from Hawaii, and maybe I wouldn't want to live in Japan, but it's quite a long way from England. I'm all right. But let me tell you, everything that goes into the ocean anywhere in the world gets into ocean life. That tends to travel everywhere and ends up ultimately on your plate as poison. Now, that is what rubbish does. And what Paul is saying is if you really want to look at rubbish and you really want to get pigs sick of rubbish, do not look at the extent of that rubbish. Let me give you a new definition for rubbish. The new definition for rubbish is not what they pick up on Tuesdays when the bin man comes. It is what goes on in your heart and mine when we think that we're good for God. That is the biggest rubbish in the world. And the reason why it's poison is because if it keeps us looking at how we live to be good for God, it takes our eyes off on the righteousness that he gives and therefore we'll never be safe. Which is why Paul says that those people, so we need to ultimately see that our goodness needs to go straight in the rubbish bin. But we also need to see that the people who tell us the Jewish way of being good maybe trying harder with various religious things, are actually seriously unhelpful. Paul calls them dogs, if you look at verse 2. And because they're saying, look, let's be good right from the start. Let's start with circumcision. Well, Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. No, says Paul, the only ones who are God's people are the ones in verse 3 who have been given the righteousness of Jesus. But the ones who preach their sermons telling you how to do good things to improve your Christian life, those people Paul calls evildoers. 
and what they're telling you is absolute rubbish. And it's a serious thing for Paul to call someone a dog in verse 2, but it is an important warning because a lot of these guys come wearing dog collars. And we need to see that although uh, it's uh, uncomplimentary, it is a necessary warning because this is ultimately how most churches will tell you how to be good for God. But Paul wants to say something better. This is the second point. Uh, knowing Jesus is better. And we haven't got... Um, I think the battery has run out. Has the battery run out? I think it has, um, and uh, we'll uh, get that uh, ready in a little while. Let me just have a, a concentration pause. Concentration breakover. Right. Knowing Jesus is better. And I want you to see that in verse 8, because Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. That means something better, more worthwhile surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What does it mean to know Jesus? I want to suggest three things from here. First, if you know someone, you spend time with them, and in this case, really thanking them. That's what Paul says in verse 1, you rejoice <coughs> in the Lord. And when you know someone, you spend time with them, don't you? Now, I want to suggest that this is where we get things wrong. It is so easy to say that we know Jesus better when we know more and more about him. So if you go to a Bible teaching church and they teach you a lot about Jesus then it must mean that you will know Jesus better in a Bible teaching church. But, if the, um, if the reality is that I can know lots of information about the Queen, and in fact the more books I can read, the more that information can grow, but nonetheless I won't know her, because we are on two different planets. I know the people I spend time with. And the mark of someone who knows Jesus is they spend time with him and specially spend time thanking him that although their righteousness is rubbish, he has given them his righteousness and uh, made them uh, good for God in that way. Now, I'm not saying we only spend time and thank him when we do something wrong and we realize that our righteousness is rubbish and then that's our cue to thank him for his. I'm not saying that. I'm saying on a good day, when we come away having had three different fantastic visits on the doorsteps and we feel really... Uh, close to God because we've been serving him in that way. Well, my friends, that's not 
the righteousness that counts. The righteousness that Jesus has given you is what counts. On a good day, thank him for his righteousness. Spend time with him. That's how you know someone. Okay? The first way you know Jesus is by spending time uh, with him and his uh, righteousness. And thank him for it. Second thing, we want to be like him right now. And this is why I think Hannah really helped us to see the surprise in verse 10. Have a look at verse 10 and have a look at the surprise. It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Now that's surprising, isn't it? Because we'd expect Paul to write it the other way around. Okay, I want to know Jesus. And, okay, I know that part of that is going to be identifying with his sufferings, but I want the power of the resurrection, so then the sufferings will stop. But he puts it round the other way around. It's when you have the power of the resurrection that the suffering comes after that. How can that be? But isn't it true that it's when people really are willing to identify with Jesus to the point that it is hard for them to go against what they normally want. Like Jesus said, when you deny yourself, when you take up your cross and follow Jesus, when, in other words, it is tough to follow him, and the people still want to be like him in those moments, at that point you know that they've got resurrection power because this is what life is like after the resurrection. Think about it. When you are in heaven, you won't suffer for the gospel, but the idea of putting someone else in front of you and living in that way is actually what heaven is all about. We mustn't think that, yeah, we live with a little bit of self-sacrifice now, self-denial now, but don't worry, the minute we get to heaven, everybody starts serving us. It doesn't work like that. Once you follow a servant king, then in this kingdom, servants are ultimately how people live. And therefore, if you don't like the idea of serving other people, you will hate heaven. But if you want to know Jesus, you will start living and loving his life and that lifestyle now. So the first people who know him, spend time and thank him, rejoicing in the Lord. Second people are those who want to be like him in suffering because they understand resurrection. But thirdly, there are those who want to be with Jesus in the future. That's true of Paul in verse 14. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what's Paul looking forward to? I've been scratching my head a lot trying to work out what it is that he really wants. And this is what I want to suggest to you. What Paul really wants is he wants to be the righteous person he will be in heaven. So he's wanting Jesus to uh, 
come because he hates to see his limitations stopping him from being righteous now. He hates his inability to be like Jesus perfectly now. And therefore he wants Jesus to come in verse 20. From heaven we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, because at that point the limitations that will stop him living uh, righteously will be removed because he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now we can be like him. You see, the alternative to self-denial is self-indulgence. And that's what Paul talks about and describes in verse 19. Get as much pleasure as you can into your system now. Um, in today's churches, I guess that might be presented as get as much prosperity into your system now as you can. In verse 19, their God is their belly and their minds are set on earthly things. But the real believer wants that heavenly lifestyle of living out the character of the king of the country in which they are citizens. So yes, their citizenship in verse 20 is in heaven and they are waiting for the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ means king. They are waiting for the king to come so the citizens will be perfectly like him. And until then, as much as we enjoy time with the Lord, thanking Him for His righteousness, as much as we begin to identify with the Lord Jesus in the suffering and the self-denial uh, that uh, comes our way, nonetheless, I think the thing that really frustrates Christians, if you know your own heart, the thing that really gets you down, is when we are not Christ-like in the way we react and behave. Yeah, there are other things that other people can do to us uh, that don't make us uh, happy. But frankly, it is all those moments that we are not like him that probably are the reasons for uh, the greatest low points. And now, what Paul says, I'm going to look to my joy to be with him for that changing effect he's going to have on my life rather than to try and escape my sense of failure by comfort eating and the belly gets bigger or some other distraction in this life as I uh, maybe glory uh, in things that are shameful and set my mind on earthly things. That is the alternative to, um, uh, to uh, uh, being uh, gripped by heaven, to start being dazzled uh, by this world instead. Well, let's see how that might uh, work out in three ways. First, perhaps you're not used to be real Christianity, you're not used to Bible Christianity, maybe you've you've um, uh, not been to church at all before. Let me tell you, 
Christianity is not about being a better person. It is really helpful for us to understand that. Let me say that again. Christianity is not about being a better person. It is about knowing a better person who will give you his righteousness, give you the power to rejoice in uh, that uh, gift that he gives you, gives you the power to suffer, to be like him, ultimately to give you a future where you will be like him. Let me tell you, if you don't have him, what this life holds for you, it will be that you will live for food and you will live for sex and these are the telltale signs of a life being destroyed in verse 19. Their end is their destruction because life is going this way. So please be self-aware and ask the Lord Jesus to save you from a rubbish way of living and to give you his righteousness and to change you into being like him. What happens if you've been to church a lot and some of us here have been to lots of different churches in the past? My guess is that most churches have fed us a diet of be good, be good, be good and different ways in which uh, they will uh, give you checklists of how to be accepted in their place. Now I think it's a warning to be careful. It's a warning for us to be careful that we don't put together lists like that uh, because uh, that would be uh, uh, rubbish to do that. But I think it is a warning for other people who come from other churches and join us to realize that what they've picked up is probably a great deal of rubbish if the lessons have been on how to be a good Christian and so on. And what we need to do that if we've come into place is to put the rubbish in the bin, to unlearn it and to learn to love and uh, uh, value and praise God for what Jesus has done. My friends, doing this will give you what religion will never do. It will give you joy in your heart. You will rejoice in the Lord when you realize that he has given you his righteousness and you don't have to climb up the ladder and work at your own. But what happens if you are a genuine believer? Now here's an interesting thing about Paul. Paul in verse 10 clearly knew Jesus. He's an apostle, of course he knew Jesus. But what's he saying in verse 10? He wants to know Jesus. He knows Jesus and he wants to know Jesus. In other words, this is a relationship that is growing. And if an apostle can say that he wants his relationship to grow, then ultimately that is uh, what uh, is a, a wonderful desire for all of us as well. Because any good relationship, you want to grow, don't you? You don't get married and say, uh, okay, well, after uh, however many years I know my wife, um, I've been there, I've done that, uh, now give me something else. 
I've got to the, I've got, I've, I've max, maxed out on that relationship. I need uh, uh, something new. No, you, you spend your time growing in your joy about this uh, undeserved gift that you've been given. You are powered by love to please her. You are frustrated intensely when you get it wrong. Well, married or not, love knowing the Lord Jesus like that. Spend time with him, rejoicing in his undeserved righteousness. That's how relationship grows with deep gratitude. Grow like him in wanting to suffer to be like him. Self-deny. Take up the cross. And be like him, longing to be perfect like him, as you, in the words of the Apostle Paul, press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. As you understand there is a day when uh, uh, the frustrations of not being like Jesus will finally be replaced as you are transformed from your lowly body to be like his glorious body. And then finally, the thing you can long for on your deathbed is that the next morning you will wake up and you will be living like him perfectly in his kingdom with your citizenship looking just like the king that is the great joy of knowing Jesus that is why it's far better than any joy that a checklist can give let's pray for a moment in quiet that God will help us to know Jesus and then we'll pray our prayer aloud at the end of a minute and ask God to help us as a church. Let's first pray silently and take in these words, talk to God about them in a moment of quiet. Well, let me pray, but then take questions. Father, we want to turn away from our rubbish attempts at being good and turn towards the one who will give us his goodness. And please help us to know him by spending time rejoicing in him, in suffering like him, and one day to fully resemble him when our limitations uh, leave us and when we stand before our King with all his ability, reflecting his great goodness and love. Father, we long for that day and we press on towards it for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.